identity theft in connection with a lawyer-client relationship is very, very unlikely. Probably not impossible, but very unlikely. And does it really merit the imposition of this regulatory burden on the vast legal profession? This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. I'm Craig Williams from a very sunny Southern California that didn't have a tsunami this weekend. And this is Bob Ambrogi from Massachusetts. I write the blog Legal Blog Watch for Law.com and my own blogs, Law Sites and Media Law. And I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. Bob, today's show is sponsored by Clio, a web-based practice management software for lawyers at goclio.com and Landy Insurance for legal malpractice that you can find at landy.com. Well, Bob, the American Bar Association has decided to file suit against the Federal Trade Commission after they applied the red flags rule to lawyers. According to uh, red flags rules, they apply to financial institutions and creditors with covered accounts and lawyers being defined by the FTC as creditors. The red flags rule, which goes into effect on November 1st, 2009, is designed to prevent identity theft and is leaving the legal community reeling. Today, we'll take a look at the red flags rule, at the lawsuit filed by the ABA, and uh, at the implications of all of this for the legal community. And our first guest to help us discuss this is attorney Andrew M. Smith. He's a partner at the Washington, D.C. office of Morrison and Forster, and he's also the chair of the American Bar Association's Red Flags Task Force. Andrew Smith practices in consumer financial services law. And he advises clients on financial privacy issues relating to the Fair Credit Reporting Act, the Fair and Accurate Credit Transaction Act, and the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act, as well as state and federal laws prohibiting unfair and deceptive trade practices. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Attorney Andrew Smith. Thank you. And next to join us today is Attorney Mari Frank, who is on the advisory board for the Privacy Rights Clearinghouse. Mari Frank is a practicing attorney. Uh, she's a certified information privacy professional, author, and radio host. Mari has testified before Congress and the California legislature and helped write many privacy and identity theft laws. Mari also hosts a one-hour weekly radio show called Privacy Piracy at the University of California and has a new book, The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft, which is going to be published in the spring of 2010. Attorney Mari Frank, we're glad to have you on Lawyer to Lawyer. Well, thank you for asking me. And Bob, we did reach out to the to the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, and ask them to be on the show, but we did not hear back. That's right. And uh, let's uh, begin the discussion with Andrew Smith. And Andrew, uh, for those of us uh, who are not familiar with the Red Flags Rule, uh, give us an overview of what this is about. Okay. Well, as... Uh, I think it was Craig who said that the rule applies to creditors and financial institutions who have covered accounts. All three of those are defined terms in the rule. That's creditor, financial institution, and covered account. A creditor is defined as uh, anyone who uh, will be defined as any uh, sort of a traditional creditor, like a loan company, as well as uh, anyone else who grants the right to defer payment for goods or services. Um, 
Uh, and so it would include, according to the FTC, uh, anyone who provides services and then bills at the end of the month for those services, who bills in arrears for those services. Um, and so, according to the FTC, again, it would include lawyers. The term financial institution is much more narrowly defined. It's either a bank or any other person who maintains a transaction account for a consumer and a transaction account, a classic transaction account is a deposit account. A transaction account also would include any other account uh, where, there's the, where there's money um, that the account holder can access by means of a check or another negotiable instrument. Um, and finally, uh, the rule applies to creditors and financial institutions who have, quote, unquote, covered accounts. Uh, covered account has uh, two definitions. The first is any account that is offered to a consumer, that is to an individual for personal, family, or household purposes, and permits deferral of payment. The second definition is any other type of account, including, for example, a commercial account or a business account, um, where there is a uh, reasonably foreseeable likelihood uh, or reasonably foreseeable risk from identity theft. Uh, and identity theft is fraud committed using someone else's means of identification. So classic identity theft would be, let's assume that I own a mortgage company and someone pretending to be Mari comes in uh, and, and, and applies for a mortgage and uh, you know, they have Mari Frank's ID, they have Mari Frank's social security number. I assume that it's Mari. I extend the loan. Um, I, then when I go out and try to collect on the loan from the real Mari Frank, she says, what are you talking about? I've never heard of you. I've never obtained a loan from you. And I realize that I've been had. And Mari is the victim of identity theft. And I, as the mortgage company, also am a victim because I've been, I've been defrauded of that money. That's classic identity theft, and the rule is intended to get at that classic identity theft by requiring those lenders and financial institutions to have in place a program that, that would help them know who they're doing business with. So it would be a, the, the reason it's referred to as red flags is it would require these lenders uh, to have um, to, to identify specific red flags or indicators of identity theft that they ought to look for um, during the account opening process. Uh, so that, in a nutshell, is what the rule requires, and the American Bar Association thinks that it's being applied to lawyers inappropriately by the FTC for any number of reasons, and we can get into that um, you know, maybe a little bit later in the, in the conversation. Mari, how is it that law firms and lawyers are getting shoehorned into this these set of definitions that Andrew just went over? Well, I'll tell you. Let me give you a little bit of a history of why these red flags came into being, because I was very involved in a lot of the legislation for the Fair and Accurate Credit Transaction Act. Back in 2003 was when there was a provision in FACTA to create a red flags rule, and, and that's because there were so many companies, just like Andrew was talking about, that were issuing credit like candy without verifying or authenticating the person who they were extending credit to. And so the whole idea of red flags was, hey, if you see an address on an application that is very different from the address on the credit report when you're about to issue credit, that's a red flag. You should either call the person or send it a postcard or something before issuing credit. Or if you're uh, 
giving credit in a store and you see documents that look very strange and the person cannot give you enough documents to show who they are, stop and verify the identity before you issue credit. That was really the history of these red flag rules is that really the financial industry was the culprit and still is the culprit today as to why we have so much identity theft. Because even if, let's say, Craig Williams, let's say even if I get your Social Security and I, number and I get all sorts of information about you from a file in a legal office, if I go and try and get credit or a mortgage in your name, if indeed the creditor is doing their job, you won't become the victim of identity theft. And that is the real history of all this. So when you talk about applying this rule to attorneys, just think about how else you're going to have to apply this rule. Any consultant that bills at the end of the month is going to be considered a creditor. Any vendor that bills at the end of the month is going to be considered a creditor. I'm in the middle of remodeling my house and I've gotten windows and I get billed later, to, to, you know, or I have so many people working for me, are they all going to be under the auspices of the Federal Trade Commission? I have to tell you right now that the Federal Trade Commission is overwhelmed and cannot help identity theft victims or really be accountable to all of the agencies right now that are under their auspices, all the financial institutions and all of the various creditors that are real creditors. To me, I have a, a kind of a slightly different thought about it, that this, this law, this, this red flags rule, really does not apply to attorneys. And if they want to apply it to attorneys, they're going to have too many other types of um, businesses that they're going to have to apply to it, and then there will be no enforcement. And really, the real enforcement has to be against the financial industry, who has been really the, the, um, the it's been their fault that there's so much identity theft. So I don't think that they should be in charge of us. However, on the other hand, I do believe as one who does privacy audits and, and do, does MCLA training for attorneys on privacy issues, I just have to say that we should still adhere to the red flags when we are taking in clients. We should have an identity theft program that encompasses uh, protecting our clients, our employees, our firms from identity theft, and we should have it in writing, and we should have a way to mitigate that damage when we do have victims of identity theft, but I do think it should be a best practices within our state bars. So that's my perspective. Well, it sounds like uh, the intentions behind the red flag rule uh, are are good, but the the question really is the application of the rule to the legal profession. Andrew, what is the ABA's objection to that? Uh, well, there are a couple of objections, and I think that they are both legal objections as well as policy objections. First, uh, we don't think that lawyers are, in fact, creditors. Um, the term creditor is a fair, I, I gave a quick overview of it uh, a little bit earlier, um, defining it as uh, someone who grants the right to defer payment. Um, that definition is drawn from the Equal Credit Opportunity Act and Regulation B, and the law specifically, the red flags rule specifically refers to the ECOA 
definition of creditor. Um, now, first of all, we don't think that as a matter of law that we grant anyone the right to defer payment. The reason that many, maybe most, lawyers uh, bill at the end of the month for services rendered is that we are ethically prohibited from billing before services are rendered, and that billing at the end of the month for services rendered is the most convenient method of billing for us. We're not granting anyone the right to defer anything. We're not in a situation where we're permitting people to finance legal fees. Uh, we, we don't believe that we enter into that type of a credit relationship, of a voluntary credit relationship, with our clients. Uh, moreover, there's case law from the Third Circuit um, as well as from uh, various district courts around the country that says that lawyers are not creditors under the ECOA. In addition, the American Bar Association argues that um, the FTC shouldn't be regulating the legal profession because regulating lawyers is traditionally the province of the states, specifically the state judiciary, and there is any amount of case law, including case law in the D.C. Circuit, uh, where where the ABA is bringing its lawsuit um, that says that Congress, when Congress passes a law that's generally applicable, it does not apply to lawyers unless Congress gives a very clear statement that it intends lawyers to be covered. Um, and again, there are numerous cases, including Supreme Court cases, that uh, that have opined on this issue. Finally, uh, as a policy matter, we think that identity theft with respect to a lawyer-client relationship. And this would be a situation where someone shows up in my law firm pretending to be, let's say, Bob Ambrosi, and asks for legal services uh, for Bob, and then, uh, you know, but is an imposter, is pretending to be Bob, and is obtaining those services under false pretenses. We think that that, as a practical matter, is very, very unlikely. And we've talked at some length with the Federal Trade Commission staff about this, and they haven't really raised any specter of how uh, uh, identity theft might intrude on the lawyer-client relationship. I understand that it may um, in very limited circumstances, but we don't think that as a, as a policy matter um, that, that's, uh, that it's appropriate to impose this rule and this regulatory burden on the hundreds of thousands of lawyers and law firms in this country. Well, Mari, let's let's look at a worst case scenario. Assuming that the uh, ABA's lawsuit doesn't uh, successfully eliminate lawyers from having to comply with the red flags rule, what are we going to have to do? Well, we're going to have to set up. There's basically four things that we have to do under the rule, and the first one is to um, have re set up reasonable policies and procedures to identify these red flags, and that's somewhat somewhat similar to doing a privacy audit. And you're basically going to find out what kind of suspicious patterns or practices or specific activities that indicate that you might have a uh, person become a victim of identity, that one of, your, one of your clients or even one of your inside employees. So that's the first thing you have to do is basically a risk analysis, which you know, that's not so terrible to do anyway. And I can tell you that there's been a lot of identity theft that I have seen not in every kind of company, including law firms. In fact, I should tell for those of you who, who don't know me, I, the reason I became very interested in identity theft is because back in 1996, 
a contract attorney in a law firm about four hours north of my office um, saw my name in one of the legal journals, our daily journal, and she was able to download a credit report in that office and commit identity theft against me. So I can tell you that it happens, and I, I know firsthand that it can happen. The second thing that you're going to have to do if you are required to adhere to this is you must detect the red flags that you've identified, okay, and then you have to set up procedures that actually write out a, a program and, and have this as your protection program from identity theft. Okay, then the next thing you're going to have to do is you're going to have to spell out the appropriate actions that you're going to take. How are you going to mitigate those damages? In other words, what are you going to do to prevent? And then what if one of your clients tells you that, or what if somebody comes and says one of your clients committed identity theft? Let me give you the best example. I was telling Andrew last night, I have had several people come to me that were victims of identity theft when someone else filed bankruptcy in their name. And the reason someone would file bankruptcy in your name is if they've already gotten an apartment in your name and they've incurred lots of bills and they don't want to be evicted, you know that the bankruptcy proceedings would stop the eviction. If they've gotten a mortgage in your name, again, any kind of bankruptcy procedure is going to forestall any foreclosure. So I have actually had this happen to several clients. However, now they've changed some of the rules in the bankruptcy proceedings. That doesn't happen as often. But what are you going to do if somebody comes to you? Do you have a procedure in place so that you can mitigate those damages for that victim? And that's what you would be required to do for the third step. And finally, what the, the fourth step would be, how are you going to reassess that program? All right. And how do you update that? What is in there? And what kind of training are you going to have? So you'd be required to set in writing your protection and mitigation program as well as train your staff and everybody there to adhere to that program and have some kind of follow-up and enforcement. Hey, I, have a, I have a couple of um, responses to some of the ideas that Mari's just articulated. First, uh, her example of bankruptcy, we, we did talk about that last night, and that actually is an interesting, is, is interesting to me. I had not heard that before. We've been doing a lot of research on how uh, identity theft might occur in, the, you know, in connection with legal services. But with respect to the bankruptcy example, and not meaning to diminish it because it is a real problem and I understand how it might happen, first, uh, we have, as Mari said, new new bankruptcy rules that have had are supposed to mitigate the or or, or supposed to lessen the the likelihood of someone applying for bankruptcy in someone else's name, filing for bankruptcy in someone else's name, and and I understand that those rules have been somewhat effective. Um, second, I'm not sure that although it's possible to imagine a situation where an individual, an identity thief, keep in mind, a fraudster, an imposter, goes to a lawyer and says, I need your help to file bankruptcy, um, that's not necessarily the way that this has to happen. An individual can go to court and file, you know, Chapter 13 um, themselves uh, they, without the assistance of a lawyer. So just keep that in mind as we think through that issue. Um, Second, uh, Mari had said that she was victimized by identity theft. 
with um, when a when an insider in a law office basically stole her credit report, used the facilities of the law office to pull her credit report, uh, and and then use that to commit ID theft. A very serious problem. But this is a rule, as Mari and I have both said, that that prohibits fraud. Uh, fraud committed using someone else's means of identification. So that actually what that serious data security problem, and I agree that law firms need to have good data security programs in place for any variety of reasons, but that serious data security problem that Mari articulated actually wouldn't present much of an issue under the red flags rule because it's not a situation where someone is obtaining legal services from the firm under false pretenses. Um, Finally, we here at Morrison and Forrester have done a risk assessment um, as required by the rule because we did not anticipate that the that the rule would be that enforcement of the rule would be delayed um, so many times as it has been, and so w- w- we engaged in that in that risk assessment last year about this time, and I talked to a ton of people in the firm, um, you know, people who worked in collections, people who worked in client intake, people who worked in. Uh, in in new business and conflicts, and we didn't find any instance where a client of our firm was pretending to be someone who they were not. Um, and and I and so from our perspective and from my own personal experience, it seems as though identity theft in connection with a lawyer-client relationship is very very unlikely. Probably not impossible, but very unlikely. And does it really merit the imposition of this regulatory burden on the vast legal profession? Um, particularly if Mari says, maybe we can deal with this through best practices or through state bar associations or through something that's a little bit more flexible than the, than the sledgehammer of FTC enforcement. Well, Andrew and Mari, I need to interrupt for just a moment here because it's time for us to take a break. And when we return, we'll look more at the red flags rule and how this rule could affect the legal community. We'll be right back. Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. Protect your legal practice with Herbert H. Landy Insurance Agency and feel confident that your professional liability insurance provides the best possible coverage for the best possible price. Whether you are establishing a new firm, adding an attorney to your team, or exploring new options for your existing firm, Herbert H. Landy Insurance Agency can match your specific needs with experience unmatched in the industry. Visit us at www.landy.com for a convenient online application or call us at 800-336-5422 for prompt and personal attention. Your practice deserves the best. Okay, welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We are back with attorney Andrew Smith, partner at the Washington, D.C. office of Morrison Forster and chair of the American Bar Association's Red Flags Task Force, and attorney Mari Frank, a practicing attorney uh, and uh, an expert in privacy uh, and identity theft issues. Uh, while we are on break, uh, 
Craig Williams uh, had to step away and and uh, won't be coming back for the second part of the program. Uh, Andrew, are are there any firms that would be exempt from this law? And uh, I'm thinking in particular about the implications of this law on on smaller firms. I mean, uh, uh, Morrison and Forster uh, might have a, a better capability to to put into place uh, compliance procedures, but what about a solo and small firm? How will this affect them? Um, I agree with you that Morrison and Forster is in a better position to implement a program like this. We have more resources and probably more expertise in these issues than than in, you know, than a run-of-the-mill uh, solo practitioner or small firm. The American Bar Association did uh, some surveys of small and medium-sized firms, and I my recollection, this, this was several months ago, my recollection is that uh, we estimated that it would take a solo maybe 10 hours to put a plan like this into place, which is not a ton of time, I recognize. Um, and then for a larger firm, it, was the, 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 it, would, it would take more time. So for a firm the size of Morrison & Forster, maybe 100 hours to put a plan like this in place. Um, because our, our operations are more sophisticated, we have more types of clients, things like this. Um, again, not an overwhelming burden individually, but in the aggregate, it really adds up. What we're talking about, I think we had something like 600,000 solos and small firms multiplied times 10 hours, and that lost productivity, and it's a significant burden on the, uh, on the legal profession in the aggregate. And so uh, we felt as though it was a burden that probably wasn't merited, given the fact that identity theft was, um, for most lawyers, we would argue, very, very unlikely. Um, and uh, so, uh, again, yes, you know, Morrison and Forrester, fine, we can handle it. Small lawyers, not so much. I think the other issue is getting to the heart of the matter, which is how do you protect your clients, your firm, yourself, and your inside employees from identity theft. And I, the whole issue of having the FTC um, be, you know, in charge of this for us is a joke because there is no way that they're going to be enforced, be able to enforce this reasonably when they should be enforcing it against the financial industry. And I am... I would just say that the the most important thing, at least for me as a privacy professional, is saying, hey, within our own profession, we need to have certain um, protocol for protecting the data and protecting our clients from identity theft. Now, in California, for example, we have legislation, we've had laws like the security of personal information that applies to attorneys, and that's uh, Civil Code Section 1798.81, starting with 1.5. And so all of us have a duty anyway, at least in California, to protect sensitive data. And I think that attorneys who don't protect the data, who don't look at red flags automatically, and, you know, as part of their practice, are going to be sued for negligence, are going to be sued if there is a victim of identity theft. I think for the Federal Trade Commission to put us as a creditor makes no sense to me. And under this rule for uh, attorneys that fail to comply with with the red flag rule, what would the consequences uh, potentially be for them? Well, 
this rule would be enfor- is enforced uh, only administratively. So there is no private right of action. Um, so administrative enforcement would mean that lawyers are subject to enforcement by the Federal Trade Commission as well as by state attorneys general. And because this rule is made under the authority of the Fair Credit Reporting Act, um, which is the national credit reporting law, there the FTC and state attorneys general can actually collect civil penalties for violation. Um, but from a lawyer's perspective, I think that the civil penalties will probably be beside the point because I don't know how a lawyer or a law firm could survive being sanctioned by the Federal Trade Commission or by a federal court for a violation of of federal law. And that's one of the reasons why I think that the application of this rule to lawyers is so inequitable. It would be, for any other company in in the country, a failure to comply with what is actually a a pretty technical requirement. And a, a failure to comply with that uh, would result in perhaps an injunction or an administrative order, but they'd survive and go on. I think that for a lawyer, it might be the death penalty because uh, because of our ethical responsibilities and our and the requirements that we um, that that we comply with any applicable law. Well, Andrew, where are are we on this? I know that the lawsuit was filed um, in August, I believe, uh, and I, and I should mention from what I've read that. Uh, uh, the 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 uh, Proskauer Rose is is also donating services to uh, to file this lawsuit and uh, all of this is up on the ABA website uh, the the complaint and and uh, other pleadings but we, where does this stand has anything happened since the lawsuit's been filed in August uh, yes and I also would like to add as you did that we're being that the ABA is being very ably represented by the Proskauer firm who's donated a lot of time and energy to, and resources to, um, to this effort. Uh, what's happened since the August filing is that the American Bar Association has moved for summary judgment, um, has moved that for the judge uh, to enter an, uh, an order, some sort of declaratory relief, stating that and joining the FTC from enforcing this rule against lawyers. Uh, we, the ABA, noticed that up for oral argument on October the 23rd, uh, and the FTC now has to file a response brief, and then the American Bar Association will file any reply, and and the judge will uh, uh, hear the case one way or the other, whether he grants oral argument or he decides it on the papers. Our hope is that we would get some sort of an answer out of the district court before uh, November 1 effective date. All right. We are uh, just about at the end of our time. Uh, before we conclude the program, we'd like to give each of our guests an opportunity to give their concluding thoughts on this topic. Uh, and also, uh, if they would like, tell our listeners how they can follow up uh, either with them or uh, more information uh, about the topic. Uh, and uh, Mari, let's start with you. What, your well, I think thoughts. I'd like to just uh, tell you that I agree with Andrew as far as this rule not really being appropriate for law firms. However, on the other hand, I think that taking the essence of the rule in terms of what we should be doing for best practices for protecting our clients and our law firm, I think it's a good idea to look at those, but I don't think we should be uh, under the auspices of the Federal Trade Commission. 
if people want to learn more about how to protect their law firm and protect privacy and avoid the terrible effects of identity theft of their firm, their employees, and their clients, they can go to identitytheft.org, identitytheft.org. That's one of my websites, or marifrank.com. And I also do expert witness testimony with regard to privacy and identity theft and technology cases as well as help victims. And they can find my books if they have clients who are victims of identity theft. We, I have a book, an identity theft survival kit with legal letters in it to remedy the situation. And Andrew Smith, let's hear your final thoughts. Well, I appreciate being on the program and also the opportunity to be on the program with Mari Frank, who really is, uh, I worked at the FTC for several years, and she is very well thought of among the regulators and in industry and consumer advocates and really is a, a leader in the fight against identity theft and for improved data security. So this has been a great opportunity for me. I would say that additional information um, as you mentioned, Bob, the American Bar Association website has a terrific uh, microsite dedicated to ID theft red flags, uh, as well as um, the FTC's website is very, very good on this issue. Not so much on the controversy about lawyers, but just on the requirements of the rule generally. The FTC has put out some very good business education, um, and that's ftc.gov. They also have a microsite. Um, I, uh, my, my email is asmith, all one word, at mofo, M-O-F-O dot com. Um, you know, for whatever that's worth. If folks want to, if folks have questions about the lawsuit um, or the rules applicability to lawyers, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to help. I think that the pleadings probably speak for themselves, though. Um, and, but I'd be happy to field questions from, from folks if they, if they have them. Well, thanks to both of you for your insights on this important issue and for taking the time to be with us today. That about does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer. I'd like to remind our listeners that they can find uh, this and all of our past programs at thelegaltalknetwork.com and also in the podcast library on iTunes. We will be back next week uh, for another great episode of Lawyer to Lawyer. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.